for a lot of these things, like it's actually really easy to make something poisonous. And as governments, as industry has grown recognition of this fact, you just have this recurring theme that all of a sudden, like uh, you invent a miracle, something or other of plastics. Like, you know, plastics were, you know, thought to be the way of the future in the 1950s. They're also a type of just, you know, molecular product. And now we find, you know, they choke seagulls, they choke, uh, you know, baby turtles. Like there's microplastics everywhere. And, you know, I think this is a type of generalized toxicity issue that we realize if you make large quantities of a new substance that the world broadly isn't prepared to digest, it, what happens is, you know, 30 years down the line, you're like, oh, crap, uh, I, I killed off the trout. I killed off <laughs> the eagles. Uh, but it, so it, it all kind of comes down to the fact that I think, you know, living systems are extraordinarily complicated and making something that is tested and safe for a living thing to interact with is actually very challenging. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. I'm especially excited to talk to Bharat because he created the DeepChem open source project, which we've seen a lot of our customers at Weights and Biases using, and it seems to be the most popular library for people working on deep learning applied to chemistry and biology. He also made an open source dataset called MoleculeNet, which is a benchmark suite to facilitate the development of molecular algorithms. He got his PhD in computer science from Stanford, where he studied deep learning applied to drug discovery, and he's the lead author of TensorFlow for Deep Learning from Linear Regression to Reinforcement Learning. I was really excited to, to talk to you. We've been seeing a lot of customers come in doing drug discovery and, and other medical applications, and it's something that I'm not super familiar with, but seems like incredibly meaningful. So, you know, we've gotten to, a chance to talk to a whole bunch of our customers and kind of ask them what they're doing. And one thing that keeps coming up is actually the Deep Chem um, library that I think you were um, the original author of. So um, I really wanted to, to start off by just asking you about that. Like what um, inspired you to make it and like what problems were you trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, you know, thank you for kind of having me on the show. Kind of glad, excited to chat as well. Um, uh, lots of folks I know have been using weights and biases to train models and you know, track experiments. So I think it's uh, uh, it should be a fun conversation, I hope. Um, cool. So I think, you know, I, a few years ago, basically, uh, during my PhD, I, you know, uh, did a internship at Google where, you know, I used their mini computers to train uh, some deep learning models for molecular design broadly. But I think what happened was, you know, as with all good things, the internship came to an end, kind of had to head back uh, to Stanford. And then I found all of a sudden I no longer had access to all that code. Um, I couldn't really reproduce my results. So I think the starting point was I just wanted to reproduce the results of my own paper. Hmm. Um, and I think to start, basically, it was just a few scripts in uh, Theano and Curis at that point. Um, and I put it up on GitHub is why not? Then a few more people started to use it. Um, and it's just kind of grown slowly and steadily from there. Um, I think the original kind of aim of uh, DeepChem was really to enable uh, kind of answering questions about, you know, so-called small molecules. So most of the drugs that we take, um, your Tylenols, your ibuprofens, things like that are all uh, small molecules. Um, but over time, I think pharma has actually begun to shift a bit. So now there's like neuroclasses of medicines. There's, all, of course, things like vaccines. Uh, so nowadays, I think DeepChem is slowly trying to grow out to uh, you know, enable open source medicine discovery across a broader swath of uh, 
broader, broader swath of modern biotech. Uh, so that's just kind of a little bit about the project. I think there is a fairly active community of uh, users. Um, there's a number of educational materials and tutorials built up around it. Um, I, I think it's also that, you know, a lot of medicine is quite proprietary, like um, medicine discovery. You know, there's uh, biotechs, if you often like see their uh, advertising material, be like, you know, our proprietary algorithm, our proprietary technique, um, which, you know, has worked fine for the industry for a long time. You know, that's the way most medicine we know was discovered. But of course, as we know in tech, you know, there's just been a shift in that open source is increasingly, you know, a foundational part of the way we build companies, we discover things. So I think part of the goal of DeepChem is to bring some of this open source energy to uh, the biotech drug discovery community and enable more people to be able to share uh, share in these tools. And it seems like you've definitely been successful at that. I mean, I, you know, even before I knew of you, I, um, you know, talking to folks at Genentech and um, GSK and a, like, I, I would say like over half of the conversations I've had with pharma companies have mentioned um, Deep Chem. And I, I thought it was pretty cool that they're all using the same um, platform and, you know, contributing IP. It just, it, it, I, I didn't know that pharma did that at all. So that seems really um, wonderful. I think it definitely is kind of a new shift in thinking, but of course, you know, pharma has seen the fact, you know, TensorFlow is open source, PyTorch is open source. So I think it is the beginnings of a shift. Um, at, at the same time, I think like IP considerations definitely do matter a lot. So I think a lot of, uh, you know, folks find they can't contribute at some workplaces, which is fine. I think it's kind of just a policy, um, but there is still a culture of caution around potentially releasing valuable IP. But I think what, what helps things a bit is there's this recognition that, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, the actual data that's the core IP. It's not necessarily the algorithm that's just kind of calculus. Um, and so I think there is uh, some favorable shifts in the industry, but it's definitely something that's only beginning to happen. So just taking a step back, because I think not everyone necessarily knows the field at all. And I actually didn't, you know, until maybe six months ago when we started to see our users doing this. Um, what's sort of the canonical problem here that that pharma is trying to solve? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, at heart, the goal really is to design medicine for diseases you care about. And the reality is this is kind of an extraordinarily complicated process. And I'd say even now, machine learning is only useful for 10% of it. And what kind of the task here is, is that you say you, you identify a disease, then you want to find a hypothesis for what you know causes the disease. Maybe there is a protein that uh, somehow has become misconfigured or mutated in the body. Maybe there's, um, you know, th there can be a whole host of uh, disease-causing factors, but you oftentimes try to take a reductionist view and narrow that down to one protein target. So you say that if I somehow could change the behavior of this protein, uh, I could potentially cure this disease. You know, it's a hypothesis. It might be right. It might be wrong. Um, but it's a good starting place. Uh, then you kind of go out and you say, all right, now I know this protein. Can I find a molecule that causes it to have some interaction? So there's some, a few kind of mental models for this. You can think of it as a lock and key. Uh, you can kind of think of it as... You know, basically an interacting agent that kind of comes in, the drug that is, and shifts the behavior of the protein in a way that's favorable. So the goal computationally at a crude level is saying that, you know, design the molecule. You know, given the, the description of this problem, print out the ideal molecule for this. 
Now, the reason this gets challenging is that, you know, the ideal molecule is um, extremely hard. I think one of the hardest problems here is that there's this question of toxicity. So there's all sorts of, you know, I, I think a silly example for this is, you know, if you want to kill cancer cells, you can pour bleach on them. It's just that you can't drink that bleach. That's going to kill you too. Um, so, you know, a lot of medicine is pretty indistinguishable from poison. It's really targeted poison that goes after one particular uh part of the body. Uh, so when you're designing medicine, you're often just struggling with this challenge if you're on this very razor thin design edge of like between poison to medicine. And you also often don't have a precise model of whether the uh, potential drug works or not until you try it in real patients. So you try to make proxy models for this. Uh, traditionally, you'd have something like a rat that has some variant of the disease, or sometimes it's things like cats or even dogs. Um, and then, but uh, when you think it's safe, you then try it out on real patients. So this is kind of the clinical trial process. There's phase one, which tests, you know, toxicity. Uh, is it safe for humans? There's phase two that tests efficacy. You know, is this actually showing effect in a group of patients that I'm trialing this on? And then phase three is basically, uh, okay, we think there's effect. Let's make sure on a big trial with lots of people. Um, and occasionally there's things like phase four, which is after the drug is being used by real people. Let's see if, let's do more studies to understand the real effects it's having on patients so we can give better guidance to doctors. Um, so I think the heart of the challenge in applying machine learning here is that we are dealing with a lot of unknowns. We don't know uh, precisely why things become poisonous. We know some of the reasons, but uh, oftentimes you'll get uh, just these strange factors that crop up. We don't know if a potential medicine actually treats uh, the disease in question until we try it. So well, I think, wait, so just to slow down for a second, I think it's not even obvious to me necessarily what the machine learning problem is within that. I mean, what's yep. like, what's the input data and what's the, like, what are we trying to predict? Uh, so th that's definitely uh, another great question. And usually the challenge here is that you start with a very narrow sliver of these problems. So there are, say, limited models for toxicity that uh, given some amount of data, maybe you have a database of compounds and you're like, this molecule, you know, induced negative effect, you know, something. Uh, you can train a machine learning model that given the structure of a new molecule will predict an output, which is, you know, the toxicity label. Um, the challenge, of course, is generalization. Uh, you know, it works on your training set, but if I give you a new molecule, is it, does it actually work? That's often the question. It's just very hard to gauge that. Um, and then how is it possible... Sorry, dumb questions. I'll, I'll just ask <laughs> the questions I actually have. So, uh, like, how would you possibly have enough training data? Like, you're not going to keep yeah. poisoning cats, right, to to keep finding more and more poisonous molecules? Like, how, how does that work? I think this is another great question. And the real answer is we don't have enough training data, which is why I think um, you know, molecular machine learning is a bit of an art right now, unlike, you know, images and speech where there's this dramatically larger... Uh, training sets, the data sets are fundamentally limited. Um, there's a few approaches people take to deal with this. I think kind of one common theme is let's use more the fact that we know a lot about physics and chemistry. Um, you know, toxicity, I think, is a very hard problem because it's biology. It's, uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of harder. But in many cases, you'd say that, well, okay, I know something about the molecule. I know something about its invariances. I can encode that into the uh, kind of the convolutional network. So now you have kind of increasingly sophisticated, you know, graph convolutional networks that encode more factors of known molecular structure. 
Um, it's it's definitely not a salt field. I think this entire kind of part of machine learning is far from you know what I'd call the ImageNet moment. So that there's that point at which something just crosses over and breaks out. Uh, and, and I think you know right now it's useful, but it, it isn't that magic bullet uh, in this well, I wanna, quarter. I actually really would like to go back to that, but I want to make sure I understand the the core problem here. So it sounds like it sounds like you have like a molecule and you want to predict some kind of property. And I think that is um, definitely the most common one. There's a number of variants to this. Like you might have a protein and you want to find a molecule that interacts with it. Um, mm-hmm. you, one way you can do this is the property is, does it interact with the protein? Mm-hmm. Um, there's also generative models where you say that, okay, given a database of known drugs, you know, use some LSTM or something to just print out uh, a new potential drug. Uh, this tends to get a little hairy. It's kind of uh, hot research, but it's not safe to really use in production. I think um, I, there's there's some raging academic debates about that right now. Um, <laughs> okay, but sorry, can yeah. I ask some more dumb questions before no, you? Please, please. <laughs> so, how do you even represent a a molecule like text? It seems kind of obvious to me, but like, how do you? Um, I mean, it seems like the molecules are variable length and they have some structure. Is it like? No. Is it a graph? Is that? It's actually a great question. Um, so it, 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 thankfully that there's kind of the field of chemoinformatics where a number of years ago they defined a language called SMILES, um, you know, S-M-I-L-E-S. So SMILES strings are basically a language that allow you to write down uh, molecules. It's most often used for small molecules, but you can write pretty big arbitrary molecules as well. Um, under, often, so there's a number of architectures. Many architectures take the SMILES and do convert it into a graph. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea is that the atoms in the molecule turn into nodes in the graph and uh, bonds usually turn to edges. Uh, although sometimes you do something like a distance cutoff because there's these non-covalent interactions. So you might say all atoms that are yay close to each other are now bonds in my, uh, or have edges in my graph. Hmm. And does that completely represent a molecule? Uh, so. Honestly, not at all. So, like the the real molecules are these very complex, you know, quantum beasts that have you know orbitals and like extremely complicated wave functions. Um, in fact, I'd say that when you get past like really teensy molecules like helium or like uh, there's there's probably a few like slightly more complicated ones. You actually don't know the quantum structure of these things until I think the quantum computers like arrive and like we can run these simulations we actually do not really have the ability to grasp the, you know, the quote unquote true structure of a molecule in most cases. So it's an approximation. Um, it, it's mostly useful for many purposes though, but uh, yeah, the molecules are more complicated than we understand in many cases. But when you talk, so when you talk about like an LSTM generating a molecule, it's generating sort of literally generating like a string that gets interpreted as a molecule. Exactly. Uh, so the, the smiles language I mentioned, so precisely what you do is that you just treat it like a sentence generation task, but you're generating in the smiles language. Mm. Uh, and oftentimes the challenge there is that uh, if you do this naively, you'll generate uh, uh, grammatical errors, so it's not an actual molecule. But there's been a lot of research, uh, there's some groups at MIT in particular and uh, Toronto that have uh, worked out ways to constrain the generative models so that it's more likely to generate ab- uh, real molecules. So I, I guess this sounds, um, you know, as like a, an ML person, this sounds like incredibly appealing, right? Like a kind of a well-formed, tricky ML problem that has the potential of saving lives. And I guess um, I wonder, like, how, like, 
how much of this is real and how much of it is speculative? Like, can you point to an example of like a drug that was um, created through this process or, or helped by this process? Uh, so absolutely not, unfortunately. So this is kind of where it gets really fuzzy because it's um, on average, like, uh, you know, I think COVID might actually speed up discovery in some cases, but most of the time it's like 15 years from the first discovery, uh, starting a project to like the actual getting to patients. So there have been simpler computational techniques in use for decades now. So there's some degree of evidence that they help, but I, I don't think there's been a smoking gun. There isn't like one molecule that you can really point to and say that an AI made that. And I think it's more like, you know, the process of using this program helped, you know, in some fuzzy, hard to quantify fashion, the design of this uh, uh, compound. But it seems like the the programs are kind of suggesting, or at least the framing that I hear from a lot of our customers is the programs are like suggesting compounds to try, which makes a ton of sense, right? Because you, you have to try something. So I assume that, mm-hmm. you know, people have some non-random, <laughs> you know, approach for, for, for this, right? And so is, is that actually better than, I guess is the, do you, it seems like there must be evidence now if these deep learning techniques work better for this kind of suggestion than other techniques. Like it's, that seems like pretty quantifiable or, or am I missing something? So I think part of the challenge here is that it's hard. There's like many steps in the process. So there's, there was a paper from Google recently where they showed that on one particular task that, uh, you know, when they ran the, uh, the experiment, the assay naively, it was like a few percent, you know, hit rate, you know, that, that is like things that actually like looked like they might work in that stage. And when they, you know, bootstrapped it by training a machine learning model, then made predictions, it was something like 30%. And, you know, that sounds like a giant boost, but I think that's like one step out of like 20 in the process. Ah, so, so you take the thing that comes from that, then you go to the next stage where you're like, well, okay, this molecule is good, but it turns out that, you know, it gets caught up by the liver. We need to like change it somehow so that it avoids that. And right now, the best way to do that is still to hire a seasoned team of medicinal chemists who can guide you through that process. Um, in the later stages, it gets particularly gnarly because you have very small amounts of data. So like the Google paper, they it was at an early stage where they could generate programmatic large data sets, like 50 million data points or something. But in the later stages, you might have like 100. And then all of a sudden, you're in that fuzzy no man's world in which machine learning is kind of witchcraft. Um, uh, so it, that's where, that's, I think, part of the reason, because like maybe you started out with something that was, you know, uh, AI generated, but then 10 medicinal chemists came along, tweaked it here, tweaked it there. Then what do you have at the end? Uh, and honestly, we don't know. Like, I think 10 years from now, maybe there will be a molecule we can point to. But for now, I think it's still fuzzy. It's kind of interesting that you said, um, I mean, I, I totally resonate with the ImageNet moment because I, I definitely remember the ImageNet moment for vision because I was, you know, running a company that was selling training data and suddenly, you know, everyone flipped from wanting text training data to, mm. to images because suddenly all the image applications were working. But I guess what was kind of interesting was that I actually feel like the ImageNet moment came a few years after ImageNet. Like, it, it, like not only did it have to you know, we saw vision starting to work, but it took people a while to realize it. And then companies started to staff up. And now, you know, I can, I can go on Pinterest and, you know, click on stuff and buy them right away. Or I can, yep. you know, like 
find all my baby photos in my in my iPhone. But like, it seems like this one, the medical companies have kind of staffed up maybe before it's clear that it's working, right? Because it does seem like deep learning is now important to basically every pharma company. I mean, it seems like this could be set up for a real serious disappointment also. You know, I think um, you know, I think that's very kind of insightful as an observation, and I, I think you're totally right. I, um, I think if you talk to a pharma veteran, they'll talk, there's like this old Fortune magazine from 1980 where you know, they had some picture of molecules on a computer and they said it's going to be like, medicine on the computer, it's going to change everything. And, and of course, nothing changed. Um, and I think, you know, even for the Human Genome Project, there's a lot of hype. You know, people thought, you know, having access to the genome would change everything. But I, I think the recurring theme of biology is that it's, um, you know, billions of years of evolution always have more tricks behind them. So I, I think you're right. I think deep learning is a useful but not magical tool in this space right now. And I think that, you know, in some cases that disappointment has already hit people. Uh, I think in other cases, though, like my hope is that people stick with it because I think these techniques do have a lot to offer. But yeah, I, I don't think it's going to magically cure cancer. I think it'll be one useful tool in the scientist toolkit to discover medicine. But what do you think, um, like, what do you think caused people to feel this optimism because machine learning techniques have been around for quite a long time and presumably people were trying these on the same data sets like is there something special about deep learning that it sort of feels more promising in some way it's a great question um you know i I think you know we all saw this like amazing wave of just deep learning hype um because i think you know that image net moment it spread out into all these other fields and I, i think people started hoping um and, you know, I think there are some genuinely new advances that deep learning on molecules has engendered. Uh, for example, I think, you know, the more predictive models, when you have enough data, they actually start working considerably better. Uh, this Google paper I mentioned uh, a while back, it actually uh, gets like a considerable boost over a simpler random forest or something because it has enough data. The generative models, um, they, they can sometimes do clever things. So I think there is some substance. It's not all paper. Uh, but there isn't that, um, I, I think there is the hope that it might lead to a breakthrough. And for just speaking for me personally, when I started working in this field, I didn't really understand any biology or chemistry. I think, uh, last ninth grade bio class was my last formal training in the subject. Um, and you and me when, both. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I had a good ninth grade bio teacher, but yeah, I think when you come in, you're like, well, you know, tech can solve many hard problems. Like, why can't it solve this? Why not? And and I think the answer is evolution has had billions of years, and that just builds up irreducible complexity sometimes. So, um, I, I think it, I, I I think I'm still hopeful. I think there is real potential and value, but I think also like uh, once you've gone oh, spent some time in it, I think if you get some humility of this, the scope of the problem is much grander than you, at least I first realized when I was coming into the space. Um, but yeah, I think it's just the hype train got ahead of the actual technology. And then it's like Gartner hype cycle. I think now, you know, we'll end that trough of disappointment and then you know, that slope of enlightenment uh, <laughs> coming up a few years from now. Interesting. People seem fairly optimistic for a trough of, of disappointment. So um, it's, it's an interesting maybe perspective. Still. Yeah, maybe maybe we're still coming down. I, I hope not. Do you? Um, yeah. I mean, one one problem that 
I've always found in, in health applications is, is missing data. Like, are there data sets like ImageNet for these kinds of applications? Uh, so honest answer, not really. So I kind of uh, started a project called MoleculeNet uh, a number of years back in grad school, uh, along with kind of one of my co-authors. And our intent was to gather as many data sets as we could to try to make something like ImageNet. And I think the honest answer is we helped a little bit. I think there is a useful collection of data and benchmarks we put together. But the challenge is that molecules are not... So I think in, in, in computer vision, I think object detection, you know, object localization, uh, they don't cover all vision tasks. I think there's some hard frontier problems still, but you get like a pretty big chunk of them. Uh, in molecules, it's more like there's just an entire range of things people want to do with them. And you have a little bit of data for each task, but there's like, and the tasks are often not related. So if you take like a quantum mechanical data set, you'll find that very different, you know, featureizations and algorithms actually work better than if you take a biophysical task or a biological task. Um, so I think there is a reasonable amount of data in aggregate, but it's for different applications and you can't easily blend it into one ImageNet style mono data set yet. Interesting. It kind of reminds me of like natural language processing with all of its different um, applications, I guess. I, I think, you know, I think there is a dream that, you know, maybe we can figure out some type of universal pre-training that akin to the GPT-2 models or the like actually does get you to that universal molecular model. I, I think as of now, we haven't achieved it, but maybe it's not crazy to think that we can. Like we do know that Schrodinger's equation at some deep level is pretty close to a, uh, you know, leaving aside relativity, it's the best known model of these molecules we have. So maybe the quantum computers will eventually help solve this, but uh, it's, it's a ways off for now. Interesting. And, and the experiments presumably are kind of expensive to run now? Yeah. Um, I think there's, uh, there, there's the rise of, I think, mail order services, things like Enamine uh, or Mushi, I think, where you can you know, pick out a molecule out of a catalog, then they'll make it for you and they'll ship it to you. So it's a little easier than it used to be. You don't actually need to be uh, a bench chemist. At the same time, you still do still need to run an experiment. So oftentimes people will say use Enamine to buy it, then they'll use a second contract research organization to run the experiment. And they'll just keep track of quality control. So it is possible to do it, you know, not quite in your basement, I think, but you know, maybe in a well-stocked garage where you, know, you can carefully, you know, coordinate many email threads or something like that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's expensive. It'll put you somewhere between a few hundred to a few thousand dollars per compound, depending. Uh, so how, how do these startups that, that, I mean, cause we have a whole bunch of customers that are startups, you know, doing this type of thing. How do they, how do they hope to kind of compete with bigger companies when they don't have access to, to these data sets? That is a great question. Um, in many ways, maybe I'm not the right person to ask because I didn't found one of these startups. <laughs> sure, fair. Uh, I, so I think there is some advantage to coming at it with some new eyes. Um, I, I think when you're a very big company and are trying to introduce just a shift in thinking, there's, of course, a lot of cultural inertia, uh, just, you know, traditional startup versus big co dynamics. Um, I, I think there is some potential to pick up kind of interesting uh, 
potentially low-hanging fruit that just people haven't looked at. Um, I think there is this also some, eventually, I think, potential for mergers and acquisitions. I think building a talented machine learning team can be difficult. And I think if you have a company that has succeeded and has shown some promise, you know, maybe it's a good acquisition target. So I think there are fruitful paths forward for many of these companies. Um, I think some of them are actually aiming really high. They want to be the next Genentech. Um, and I think it is possible, but I think that might end up coming down more to your biologists than it does to your machine learning people. And uh, perhaps I'm a bit of a pessimist on that front. Um, I think core biology, the really foundational stuff, is still beyond our current machine learning and AI techniques. I think it's beginning to change. I think as you get more genomics data, more kind of biological material that you can feed into machine learning models, there's a lot of companies at that frontier. But for now, I, I think it really is that if you have a crack team of scientists, that might take you further than a crack team of machine learning engineers. Ideally, you have both, and then you have the best of all worlds. Although it just seems like the data collection process is so hard. It seems like you might need to innovate there, too. I mean, I'm a, yeah. you know, coming from my own background of, of data labeling, but it, um, it just it seems so daunting, the idea that you have to, like, order... Um, molecules somehow and, and like run yeah. a wet lab or something. I, I mean, just um, I guess, okay, I have, I have a whole bunch of different questions. I hope you don't mind. One thought I have, I guess, this is probably like the dumb things that people think of when they first hear about this stuff, but it sort of, it seems like if you could model things about molecules, that's like so powerful. Like that's like the stuff everything's made out of. Like there must be applications besides biology that might be simpler. Is that, is that true? I, I think absolutely. Um, now, unfortunately, I think the challenging part is some of the most interesting applications are in places like batteries. And of course, ah. batteries. Uh, so I, I think there's there are kind of other fields, like, for example, it turns out, you know, the uh, uh, well, the crop protection industry. So if you make pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, pretty similar techniques. Um, really? Mm -hmm. So it, it actually yeah, I guess there's it's just properties of, of molecules. And in fact, I, and this is kind of coming back to that, you know, thin line between poison and medicine. You know, a pesticide, oh. if you actually take a look at some pesticides and you look at them, you'll, they kind of look like the same small molecules you have in medicine, um, which might explain a few things about the world, just, just <laughs> saying there. Uh, I think there's also other applications, like I, I think in industrial applications broadly in petrochemicals, even I think there's a bit. Um, it's, so there's absolutely kind of other cases, but you know, I think you know, we in the software industry are sometimes used to working in our world of bits. And, you know, uh, it, whereas I think like when you get into these industries, you're like, at the end, you have to make something. And I think there is that slowdown. I think um, maybe batteries is actually the hardest. Pharma is a little behind that. I think some of these agricultural applications are a little easier to get to market, but still quite daunting. Um, and I, I think in general, it just kind of comes down to like, for a lot of these things, like it's actually really easy to make something poisonous. And as governments, as industry has grown recognition of this fact, you just have this recurring theme that all of a sudden, like uh, you invent a miracle, something or other, of plastics. Like, you know, plastics were, you know, thought to be the way of the future in the 1950s. They're also a type of just, you know, molecular product. And now we find, you know, they choke seagulls, they choke, uh, you know, baby turtles. Like there's microplastics everywhere. And, you know, I think this is a type of generalized toxicity issue that we realize if you make large quantities of a new substance that the world broadly isn't prepared to digest, 
uh, what happens is, you know, 30 years down the line, you're like, oh, crap, uh, I, I killed off the trout. I killed off <laughs> the eagles. Uh, but it, so it, it all kind of comes down to the fact that I think, you know, living systems are extraordinarily complicated and making something that is tested and safe for a living thing to interact with is actually very challenging. Mm. What about um, other medical applications? Like, I think you wrote a book on this, right? So, like, what are the other categories of things? And I guess I'd be curious your take on, like, how how promising they are, since I, <laughs> it sounds like it's hard to separate the hype, but you probably thought deeply about this. I, I definitely think there is a whole host of really promising applications. I, I think to name two, I think microscopy is going to be con- completely changed by, you know, con nets. Um, this is one of those magical places where, hey, ImageNet works, as in you can actually take an ImageNet model and stick mm-hmm. it on top of a microscope and start doing pretty sensible things pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So, What's an general, example of a thing that you might do with microscopy? So it's actually, so one of the kind of interesting things about this field is that you can pick up a lot more out of a microscope than you kind of thought. So there are some really interesting papers that show that um, oftentimes, like, so there's some, say, readouts of a cell that were traditionally you have to kind of destroy the cell, blow it up in order to get at it. Um, but people have started to show that you can instead, you know, get a data set where you take the original cell, then you like blow it up, get the readout. But then you can train a machine learning model to start to impute that from the raw cell. So you can potentially get non destructive readouts that enable new things. And this is kind of more basic science, like it's not clear what the downstream effect is. There's kind of a number of companies, uh, I think uh, Recursion Therapeutics is a prominent one, that have been using microscopy uh, and machine learning broadly to do, uh, you know, so-called phenotypic screens. Um, Earlier, I mentioned you often pick a protein target. Wait, sorry, I need to slow down for my ninth grade (laughs) biology. Phenotypic screen is what? Yes, so this is uh, uh, my apologies. I, no, no, uh, I just I'm like I know the word phenotype. It's it's like the expression of a gene. Is that right? I should not. Yes, guess. exactly. <laughs> um, so I think it's like one way to think about it is maybe bottom up design versus top down design. So kind of the you know targeted drug discoveries maybe bottom up. You say the human body is complicated. I'm going to be a reductionist. I think there's this one magic lever, and I can swip that lever on and off. I can really change everything. And that's kind of, you come from the bottom and then you hope it makes it all the way to the top. Uh, the other way, which is actually the more traditional way of finding medicine is like, you know, some really smart doctor, like, you know, this is like the penicillin story, notes some like effect. You have no idea what the effect is caused by. You don't really understand the, you know, intricate, uh, you know, biophysics, uh, the chemistry behind it, but you see it. Like mm-hmm. maybe there's something that just uh, you observe uh, in, in, I think this famous case of penicillin in like, uh, what wasn't the mold on the bread? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, for a phenotypic screen, like the ones recursion do, basically they have these cell-based assays where they grow cells in a, a petri dish, uh, and essentially they test. You put a little bit of medicine in there, and then you see what how the cell's state changes, and you use the microscope and the uh, deep learning system on that to pick up those changes. So you can do this very rapidly. But like, what and would be an example have, change? Like the cells are a different shape. Is that Hmm, that's a really good question. I think it, it, it often depends on, so I think it depends on the disease in question. So like a common thing, say for like cancer is that, you know, the, the silly one is, can you kill the tumor uh, mm-hmm. cells? Which um, the hard part there is, can you kill it without, you know, just finding bleach? Uh, mm-hmm. So that's something that's a medicine. 
Um, I think for other readouts really depend on the disease. Like um, kind of, I think the general point there is like disease is complicated. So there's many proxies people use. So mm -hmm. kind of the hierarchy of proxies is if you have a pure test tube, which is, you know, molecules, that's like the weakest. If you have cells, that's a little better. If you have a rat, that's a little better. But I think the gold standard, of course, is like the human. Right. Um, so this is, you can think of this as like, it's better than the, the pure test tube, but it's absolutely not the same as like, uh, but uh, as a human, mm -hmm. but it, it is a useful kind of proxy. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so then the, the, what the machine learning does is kind of find properties based on the, the images from the microscope? So I think that the way I like to think about it is that the machine learning is kind of like making a better microscope. Um, so in, in many ways, like, you know, if you go back to kind of classical signal processing, like we have all these, you know, Fourier transforms, you have high-pass filters, low-pass filters, what have you. And these, you know, traditional signal processing techniques made things like, you know, uh, microscopy even feasible in the first place. Uh, well, you had purely non, uh, purely kind of optical microscopes back in the day. Uh, but in the last century, I think there's been a lot of signal processing attached to it. So I think of deep learning in these applications as signal processing, you know, turned up to 11. Uh, so you can pull things out of the image that you didn't there's no obvious way to write down that function. Like, um, so I think right now it's more like this really fascinating scientific thing is, and you, you know, there's gotta be something there. Like, but I want to make sure I'm like picturing, like I want to have a, mm. a mental model. So like maybe that was evocative of like, did I kill the tumor cells? So is the point that like the machine learning could tell me if the tumor cells were killed without me having to actually look at it or is it that the machine learning like sees something deeper that like I couldn't figure out if I, if I looked at it. So I'll have to apologize up front because I'm not an expert at cellular biology, but I'll, I'll try to, so for example, I think for some, I, I might be making this up. So if there's real biologists that are eventually listening to this, please bear with my. No, it's a machine um, learning audience. You can, you can pontificate. <laughs> um, but I think, okay. So I think if you take some. And by the way, cells, I think machine learning people will be really familiar with the idea of like, just looking at results and not worrying about the process behind it. So this, I feel like this is really appealing to our machine learning audience. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I do have to say, I still have no way, idea about what happens deep in layer 37 of my combat. Um, but, you know, I, so I think kind of coming back there, so imagine you have a muscle cell and mm -hmm. you can often measure like some measure of like the stretchiness of the muscle cell. Like is, uh, there's often ways to kind of guess at a proxy for healthiness. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, the the actual thing you measure depends a lot on the biology of the system. So I think, uh, like, uh, for example, like one common thing is that you might, you know, there's these things called fl fl uh, fluorescent reporters. Uh, and you can set, you can engineer the cell so that, you know, if you have the drug and it actually hits something in the cell that you know about, it like sets off a light. Here it's, mm -hmm. you have to know a little bit about what's happening inside the cell. You have to have a guess already. Um, I think the cruder version might be like, you know, you have this muscle cell, you're looking at, you know, maybe there's some measure of how stretchy it is. Oftentimes, like, oftentimes it's just like kind of obvious to the eye. It's like that traditional, like, you know, you, you know, a dog when you see it, as in you see the healthy cells, they have some like nice geometric shape. It looks good. Then you see like disease and they're all like shriveled up and just looks uh -huh. bad. And yeah. you can't quite write down that function, but you, you kind of know yeah. when you look at it. Yeah, um, totally. 
so it makes sense to call nuts can begin to pick this up. Right. And I guess I've seen versions of like cancer cells and like kind of different levels and um, what do they call them? Like bi- biopsies mm-hmm. where, where you look at the, the cells. This is ninth grade biology. Sorry, I should probably cut this out. But I just, I, I, yeah, I guess I can picture what you're saying of like the, there's like healthy cells. And, but yep. so, but is the point then, I guess what, what, my question is like, what is the machine learning helping with? Like, is it, is it sort of like reducing the cost of looking at this stuff or is it like pulling out other signals that are somehow like useful? I think it's a bit of both. Um, so I think traditionally, like, uh, the traditional labor was you'd have a grad student who, whose painful job it is, if you're unfortunate enough to be stuck in this lab, to look at you know, cell one, two, three, ten thousand. 10,000. Um, now I think that it's often, there are, I think, a number of readouts where it's that thing where you just look at it and you kind of know there's a difference. So I think you can train yourself to like read these things. Whereas mm-hmm. I think this is, again, I think a lot like you know, the Pinterest example you brought up where uh, you're training the model to... Um, uh, basically pick out something and you do it at bigger scale. So maybe before I could only test 10,000 because, you know, the grad student union would revolt at that point. Um, but now, you know, maybe I can test a billion uh, mm-hmm. or I'm limited more by, you know, my supplies. I, I think the second question you asked is actually the more exciting one, as in, is it possible we can pick out something we didn't know? So mm-hmm. I, I think there's glimmers that this is yes. I know there's a few page, per, papers that are doing things like you can identify where the organelles are. You can begin to do some more complex readout. But I, I think there is sort of almost a chicken and egg problem here, as in, like, you're when you're discovering something, you kind of have to, like, it, it's like unsupervised learning, right? If you know the thing you're looking for, then you can, like, slot it into buckets pretty easily. Mm-hmm. But then if it's, like, you want to go deeper and find something you don't know. Mm-hmm. I, so I think, yes, I think there are likely places the condonuts, you know, act as, like, you know, amplified microscopes and like pick up biology that we don't know. But if I, if I knew that I would have, you know, written, gone off and written nature paper about it already. So I, I think that's, or I'm sure there's a couple that have already come out in this vein. Um, okay. Well, so I have to ask you, I mean, the, the, one of the nat- nature papers that, that blew my mind, I think a lot of people was the one, um, the, the dermatologist one where they, you know, they, they fine tuned an image net classifier on, um, on cancer. So that, that, that was not, like um, uh, under microscope, right? That was just literally just like fo- photos. Yep. And, and and that seemed like so amazing. I mean, I, I, should I be as enamored with that as as I felt, or is there is there some gotchas where it's not actually like like you know should we actually be like using doctors for these diagnoses still? Or um, it sort of seemed like from the paper that it was it was more accurate than the the doctors' diagnoses, wasn't it? No, I think I think that entire field for sure. I think is like you know radiology, or I, I think usually it's yeah, like you know pathology or you know, like dermatology. You look at some picture and then you kind of diagnose it. I, I think that absolutely is a place condonuts will just make a big difference. Um, and and I do think that these models do kind of achieve a striking advance over what you could do previously. Um, so my understanding though is that the challenge there is that. Like sometimes these models pick up things that are kind of silly. Uh, remember, there's this like very excellent blog post written um, where uh, it kind of discussed failure modes. Or it turned out, you know, there's some like scans from different trauma centers, and the model is doing like, an amazing job. You know, 99% accuracy. 
then um, anytime you see that 99% accuracy, you know something is up. It turned out there's like some label at the bottom or something that printed the trauma <laughs> center. So there's like you know, light trauma, heavy trauma, and guess guess what that model learned to do right there. Um, uh, so I think it's that it's the is it, it kind of comes down to what is the model learning? Is it mm-hmm. is it a fluke? Is it kind of an actual thing? You know, uh, radiologists are kind of tried and tested. Like, do you really want to fire like your world class radiologists? Like, so I think there's there's a natural caution there. I think in part because we don't we don't really understand what happens deep in like you know layer thirty seven of the ResNet. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the FDA and like some companies are moving forward. I do think um, in, in potentially in places where there aren't enough doctors, this could be kind of a potentially you know revolutionary advance where you could get you know world class scanning centers available clinics throughout the world uh, and not just places where you have um, you know, excellent hospitals already. Uh, but I, I, but I think, you know, I think it'll take some time. Um, I remember a number of years ago, I think maybe in the eighties, again, there's a whole wave of hype around expert systems for medicine and how they could diagnose patients. And I, I think there's, uh, this might've been that same blog, a retrospective study that found that in many cases, hospitals that deployed expert systems actually had a fall in patient kind of well-being afterwards, because there were these complex interactions that no one thought of in the first study. And then you find a number of years later that there's just unexpected side effects. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I am, you know, long, long-winded answer there. I, I think it is something to be interested in, excited about. I, I think it will also take time to really bet and really kind of like make sure that this is something that improves patient well-being. Although, I guess, I mean, do you know like what happened with the that melanoma uh, model? Because it does seem like, you know, doctors are also not perfect and you know, I, I also cannot inspect my doctor's um, brain to know, yep. <laughs> really know their decision-making process. So I wonder, is it is it unsafe to, to not um, change or, 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 or was there some real flaw or, or some simplification that so wasn't I, obvious? I don't, I, I don't think there was a flaw in the paper. Um, my guess is that this isn't my field, so I'm kind of projecting a little bit out there. I, I know that... Um, you know, the entire, you know, deploying something in the clinic and in, in the healthcare side is actually, I think, quite more complicated even than the, the new biotech side. I think you have to work with insurers, you have to work with payers, to work with hospitals and doctors. So I think, you know, the American healthcare system has many known challenges. I, I my sense is that this has just been very hard to actually get out there. Um, so I, I think, you know, in pharma and biotech, I think, the advantage is like if you get something and it works, there is actually a very well known to like path to get it to people. I, I think for advances like this dermatology thing, there's actually a fuzzier, more ill defined path to get it out there in the wild. Um, so I, I think it doesn't have. I think there there are some real scientific questions around is this actually robust that are still unanswered. But I think there's also harder business questions about does this make sense? Is it a viable uh, business. And I, I'm sure there's like a dozen startups who are working on this right now, but I just don't know as much about it. It's funny. My, my wife runs a healthcare startup uh-huh. and, and she tells me that it's the only industry where you could literally save money and save lives simultaneously and not have a viable business. <laughs> I, I've had a few friends who <laughs> left healthcare and have formed, you know, ostensibly boring, but very successful startups and are much happier with their lives. So I, I, I sympathize uh, just a little bit, but you, you probably know way more about this than I do. Like I, I'm, it's a little bit outside kind of my 
uh, my expertise. But yeah, it's no, sorry to take you outside of expertise, but this is what I was hoping with the podcast. I could corner guys like you and ask all my dumb <laughs> questions. So <laughs> I really appreciate it. And, and I think we should kind of wrap up because I think this might be just getting long for the format. But um, we always end with two questions that I'm kind of curious, actually. How, I'm, I always say this, but really, I'm curious how you're going to answer these. So um, what is what is one really underrated aspect of machine learning that you think people should pay more attention to? Mm. What that's comes to a, mind? That's a really good question. Um, I think that machine learning is amplified signal processing, I think, is a view that is not as commonly celebrated. But I think there's these really exciting things going on where, you know, machine learning is like finding its way into instruments, like into sequencers, into microscopes. Um, it's a type of Internet of Things, you could say, but like not the consumer version. But, you know, I, I think traditionally new scientific instruments always are the, you know, uh, predecessor to like fundamental new scientific discovery. So I think that when we find deep learning is making our instruments better, more capable, then I think that we're actually setting ourselves up to discover new fundamental science. So that, that's something I'm very excited by, but it's kind of a longer, you know, um, we might have the instrument, but we still need, you know, the Einstein or something to come in and you know work that and really get us uh, that magical new understanding about the world. But I'm excited by that. Mm, that's a totally cool answer. But I guess it, they might give so many readings that it's like hard to even interpret. But I guess a good... <sighs> A good algorithm would give you a few high values. Uh, what do you call them? Like process outputs. I, th I think yeah, it's it's definitely. I, I think for now it, it's still going to be quite a while before I think we see. Um, you know, I, I think we talk a lot about AGI, and I know there's many ways in which you could get a general intelligence. But I think you know the process of you know induction of you know interpolating things about reality from very few you know hunches you know. Uh, this is probably made up, but you know the Newton and the uh, uh, the apple tree. Yeah, like if it probably didn't happen that way. We know it's a just so story, but you know you could imagine some machine learning model like you know seeing that, and can you somehow interpolate from that out to a universal law of gravitation? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that I think would be amazing. Uh, it just seems far beyond our current science. It's funny though. I feel like with all these medical applications, I guess the reason I naively find them. Uh, exciting is is that you know like if, if you're trying to compete with a human for navigation and driving it's like boy our, our brains are designed for that right like clearly like huge part of our brain is just to navigate the world and not crash into stuff but it doesn't seem like our brains are designed for like interpreting molecules that we can't see and like what you know effects they might have i mean i'm still trying to visualize it in my head and it's you know i can't even do it so um it's it sort of seems like um Maybe the bar is lower for for like a like a useful algorithm. That's I, I think that's a really interesting kind of point there. Um, I, I I I do think you know understanding quantum mechanics uh, is kind of uh, you know at least doesn't fit in my my head. It's kind of there's lots of complicated things going on in that that hidden world there. Like maybe maybe part of the challenge is that it's hard to validate like a discovery, like, you know, many times a model says something, but, you know, after, after you spend a while, like nine times out of 10, you're like, all right, what bullshit did the system pick up this time? Um, and I, I think the challenge there is like, um, maybe we have to make the model, like you said, we have to make the models robust enough that there's actually high quality signals coming out. So we're like, oh, that's a clue and not, oh, the I don't know what pickup happened in 
you know, step 2000 of like gradient descent. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's maybe the challenge where we just haven't, I, I think this was beginning to change, but it, it feels like still discovery, like invention is the province of the human and not the machine. Um, but, you know, maybe yeah. that's like, you know, the antiquated line and, you know, 10 years from now, you'll have AI discovered everything and I'll be like, well, <laughs> that, that aged uh, poorly there. <laughs> We'd be an interesting world if, that's, if that comes to pass. Um, sorry. So, so final question is, so, you know, right now in 2020 and uh, I guess sorry, June, <laughs> um, what do you think is, what do you think is the, currently the, like, the biggest challenge of um, making machine learning models work in the real world? Like That's in your experience, like what are the question. challenges that you've run into? Like what have been the surprising hurdles? I, I think things more specific to me are often small data. Um, mm -hmm. Like, again, you have 30 data points. And, and oftentimes it's a very well-meaning scientist who kind of comes and says, what can you do for us with 30 data points? And then yep. oftentimes I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wish I had a better answer. Um uh, sometimes you just try seven things, like uh, you try the transfer learning, you try like the multitask learning, the meta learning, and all the learnings fail. And then at the end, the random forest is like, yeah, it's 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 all great, but it does something. So I think for for things I'm excited by, I think like robust transfer learning that actually works on small data, which I think is has occurred in NLP. Um, mm -hmm. but I think has not occurred in molecules. I think that would be an amazing advance for this field. It's so interesting it hasn't occurred because I feel like it's also totally happened in vision, like yeah. for sure, right? And, and NLP now definitely, it's a fact. Yep, yep, yep. It's so interesting. It doesn't work for, for molecules. It might just be data. Like I think if someone just found, you know, a gigantic, you know, trove of molecular measurements that was high quality and you had a billion of them. <laughs> you are, are collecting it. Nobody's going to find that, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, this is the sort of thing that I think a governmental effort could do like amazing work at. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, to be fair, I think like governmental agencies have actually put out most of the open source data out there. So they are actually working hard at this. But um, yeah, there's maybe the sort of thing that like, you know, if you get a $10 million grant or something, I think you could make a serious dent at putting together a high-quality open data set uh, for this. But it is just more expensive than ImageNet, and it will take more resources um, just because you need to do the actual experiments. Mm -hmm. Great answer. I love it. Um, well, thank you so much. Is there like some place we should tell people to contact you, or, uh, or is there anything you want to promote? DeepCam, everyone should try it. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, no, absolutely. I think, you know, part of like the goal behind Deep Chem really is to make open source more feasible for drug discovery. So I think we could definitely use more users. Uh, in, in particular, if you're an engineer that knows how to handle build processes, well, please get in touch. Uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out the windows and et cetera builds, and it's just such a pain. Oh, um, man. Too much of a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we could, we could absolutely use more help. So if you're interested in open science, yeah, please uh, do get involved. I love it. Thanks, Brad. Uh, awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.